Hello, I'm the Pink Phantom, and this is my podcast. Join me as I delve into the world of games and gaming, and especially old school RPGs. Together, let's voyage into the astral realm and check out my Phantom Call. In this episode, we have call-ins from Jason from the Nerds RPG Variety Cast and Daniel from the Bandit's Keep Podcast YouTube channel and blog. Also, I have a uh, summary of what the situation is and what's led up to where we are in the world of the Tales of the Dragon Slayers. Uh, there won't be any muster content this week. Uh, I've tried recording several times, and you'll probably hear this in particularly the the Tales of the Dragon Slayers part. Uh, sometimes mouth no want to make words right. <laughs> So there's a lot of there was a lot of stammering and stumbling and going back and forth and editing and re-editing, and plus now I've got something going on where my voice doesn't want to work as well at all. So no muster this week, but on the Hexed Press YouTube channel, and I'll link this below along with Daniel and Jason's podcasts. On the Hexed Press YouTube channel, uh, he has started doing some live stream read-throughs of muster he's up to three as of i haven't looked today but as of yesterday he was up to three uh, i'm not sure how much more he has to go i haven't looked at all of them i've kind of looked at some of each of them so i don't know how far along he is in the book but he does on youtube he's doing kind of a visual and he's covering he's covering everything there are parts of the book that i have skipped that aren't game and game mechanism specific I uh, haven't been going into a couple of sections where he's had uh, stories that he thought were illustrative within campaigns that he's played in and and worked over, the, the author has worked over. So, But it looks like that Hex Press is covering everything. So if you need a muster fix, uh, you can get a gift, different kind of experience with them. Uh, I am going to continue this until I get to the end because I do think this is an interesting book and i think it brings up some very interesting things and uh, there's not i don't think there's too much terribly much to go is there there's i'm more than halfway through the parts that aren't uh the appendices and glossary and stuff so so yes i will continue that i'm going to continue that just not this episode plus doing that would have made this episode really really long i try to keep it for sure, under an hour. I try to keep it closer to the 30 to 45 minute mark, at least under an hour. I don't know if this podcast is going to make it, and it definitely won't if I don't stop talking in the intro. So let's get to Jason's call and then to Daniel. Thank you for listening. Hey, Jason here. Just listened to episode 69. Nice. Um, I, I saw your title, by the way. Anyhow, I wanted to call in. Just a couple things. One, muster. It's interesting. I've been re-looking at the Rule Cyclopedia and Beckme, and now you're talking about tiers. And that, of course, OD&D and AD&D can be played through tiers, and they're kind of designed that way to some degree. But Beckme really, or our Rule Cyclopedia, is really the, the Dungeons & Dragons that dives into that the heaviest, I think, right? Because it really explicitly expects you to play those tier levels and breaks it down. Like the AD&D and all does as well, but that can be, it's, you know, they're even in different box sets, right? 
Very interesting. As far as the dungeon crawl goes, your solo game, a couple things just hit me. You, you know, oh, white dragon, they killed it. <laughs> I, I realized it was a little white dragon, but still, you, you know, to, to think the party's at the point where they're just nonchalantly killing dragons is interesting. As far as the contact poison, I couldn't help but think of Evil Jeff over at Minions of Musings. He, not too long ago, had a show. He was reviewing a, a book like a lot like you are. And in there, it talks about contact poison. And he was talking about how ridiculous contact poison is. So I couldn't help but chuckle when you mentioned contact poison on the, you know, some of the treasure that found. Anyhow, take care, and I will talk to you later. Thank you for the call, Jason. Yeah, I'm. I, yeah, I've been listening to those uh, podcasts by Evil Jeff as well, and I, I caught that when he was reading from that that book, and I can't remember the name of it either. Uh, it's the Minions Amusings podcast for anyone out there that's interested, and he did about three episodes on this particular particular tome, and where he talked about where the person was talking about how to deal with various types of potential traps and poisons that you could find on your on your treasure, like setting the treasure on fire to deal with contact poison. And he didn't understand why anyone would put contact poison on the treasure. And I think from that standpoint, if you look at the AD&D Dungeon Master's Manual, the random dungeon generator where it generates the treasure and it could generate contact poison on the container or contact poison on the treasure. And in that standpoint, for me, it could be just simply accidental where they're going, someone is going to put contact poison on the container and they'll know it's there. And so they can use an associate, a, an appropriate solvent or something to, to clean it off or just wipe it down or whatever they need to do to remove the poison before they themselves go into the container for the treasure if it's something they're going to be storing for a long period of time. I could see it from that context. Also, it could be someone that's maybe immune to poison. I think to the uh, the Princess Bride when you had the, the duel of wits with Wesley poisoning, supposedly poisoning one goblet with iocane powder and swipping around and then the battle of wits to figure out which one is the is the poison in and then both people drinking and then Wesley just casually mentioning that he won because he poisoned them both and he spent the last few years building up a resistance to iocane power powder. So <laughs> so that's going to to quite the extreme, but I guess if you're in an extreme sort of job or situation like adventurers usually are, then thinking of those things ahead of time and making those kind of preparations would be part of the course. But that was what I thought about when I was when I was listening to Jeff's sort of mild rant on what's the point of contact poison. I thought that was that was funny. And you know, as far as tears of play, yeah, that's something exciting is tears of play, I think, because Usually when you hear about RPGs and you listen to uh, podcasts about actual plays and stuff, usually it's more on the individual level, the dungeon delving, 
or the questing part of RPGs and not some of the things like domain play and that sort of thing on that would occur on higher levels. It seems like there's a lot of lower level adventures out there and and maybe higher level characters, but doing what we think of as lower level adventure types and not so much the, the big world building stuff. And that's something I've enjoyed seeing kind of develop naturally in what I've been doing, particularly with the, the, the mass battle I had between the, the brigands and the uh, nomads at one point. And it looks like there'll be some more of those in the future with the gnolls having taken, taken root and people trying to rouse them out. And yeah, the, you know, okay, here's a, uh, white dragon and, uh, you know, well, you know, it's just a small one. So we just took care of it. The party at this point, because of some of the large groups they've come up against and some of the creatures they've come up against and some of the large, larger hordes and some, just some good luck on some of the treasure rolls, they're really, they're really in a good position to deal damage and to resist taking damage, but they're still first level characters. They're still, they most of them have enough hit points because they got good enough constitution scores or good enough die rolls that maybe one hit's not going to get them, but two hits might and probably will. And there are some characters that are they're one hit away from being dead. So they're you know you always hear people talk about uh, magic users in old school games as being glass cannons. They can do tremendous amounts of damage, but they can only take a few hits. But these guys really are glass cannons. They can, when they get a hit in, they usually get a solid hit. But if they take a good hit, ooh. <laughs> so you can really enhance yourself with your gear, which is, you know, kind of a fundamental of OSR style play is what differentiates your character and how your character improves is, yes, you can level up and get some more power and stuff. And, you know, with magic users and clerics, getting better spells always is good. But for like fighters and thieves, this is much about the gear you're carrying as anything else. So thank you so much for your comments and your call. And I always love hearing from you. And if you're not listening to the Nerds RPG Variety Cast, you should be. There will be a link in the show notes. Uh, he has already talked about uh, giving kind of an, an overview of his opinion of the uh, rules compendium, rules encyclopedia, rather, rules cyclopedia. It's not an encyclopedia, it's a rules cyclopedia. The the Beckme play and talked about how he how Jason how he's gonna be doing a live play. Not a live play, he's gonna be doing he's gonna be playing within those rules, a solo play, and he's not going to sort of podcast that actual play, but he is going to give kind of summaries and and summaries of what he's doing and what's going on and how he's what the experience he's having with the rules. Hey, Pink Phantom, Daniel from Edith's Keep Calling In. You haven't quite got to your opinion on it, but I had to stop the muster thing when he said 250 hours to play the basic level. Oh, wow. What is going on in their campaigns? Me, personally, I do not love that. Uh, you know, if I was in a campaign, and in fact, I ran a, a mega dungeon, which was, a, you know, kind of a modern OSR mega dungeon, if you will, and it was so skimpy on the gold that, right, we played a year weekly and people, nobody got to third level. So to me, that was one thing the players grumbled about and I didn't like either as a GM. I like Moldvay's idea 
that you should level every four sessions or so. So if you're looking at to get to fourth level, that's what, 12 sessions? And if we talk about a four-hour session, you're talking 48 hours of play? Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's, that's very much more reasonable to me. I think if you're playing a basic expert game and you're playing weekly and you're halfway through the year and you haven't got to third level, I don't know. I mean, I feel like for me that it would just not be a thing. Either you're losing characters too quickly, which means to me that the balance is way off. Oh, no, balance. Uh, or you're not giving enough gold based on the actual game. Now, <clears throat> I will say that I don't know about the treasure distribution in AD&D. Perhaps it became more skimpy and maybe that plays out more. But in OD&D, that seems nearly impossible unless you're dying constantly. Like, you get a lot of treasure in BX and OD&D if you play by the rules. So, rules as written, I should say. You know, treasure distribution. So, anyways, that's just my opinion on that. I thought the 250 was wild. I'm curious what you think about it. Uh, and perhaps I'll call back. But I am really enjoying the Muster series. I know I don't call in every single podcast, but I've been following it. And at some point, I'll have to read it. <laughs> uh, although you're doing it for me. So, thank you. Hey, Big Phantom, Daniel again. So I finished, um, well, I guess you're going to do Dragon Slayers next, I assume, because you said you're wrapping up this part of it. So I just wanted to call in again. I I agree. I think those levels are the most common that I've seen. I also agree with the writer's idea that it's hard to start, for me anyways, at that mid-tier with the group because you don't have that little bit of background. I find that if I start everybody at fourth level, let's say, it doesn't feel as good for me if I'm running a campaign that's going to be an ongoing campaign that's going to last, if you will. I think that starting at first level helps kind of establish the world. You can make a lot of mistakes. But again, you don't want to be there for 250 hours. <laughs> um, the other thing I think is interesting is the idea of, I guess, this person's writing the book. And again, I'm only getting up, just reading into, I'm reading between the lines um, that it seems like the way they're talking about ending and starting campaigns that their campaigns are focused around a single kind of area or possibly group because to me you could run first to third level forever if you just keep introducing new characters right that's like some of these open table mega dungeons or whatever like you could just constantly be running at that level and then as people level up they switch out their characters they bring in new characters maybe it it, it feels good once in a while to restart maybe that's what they're talking about but i think that's really interesting i think the idea of like and this is what i'm going to try to do so we'll see how it works out in my group, we're at that uh, high high mid-tier right now. And if the players don't want to go for more domain-type stuff or whatever, then we I might try to introduce, reintroduce to the same world uh, some low-level characters for, for them to play, right? So basically keep the world, keep the history, keep even their other characters alive in the world, but have them focus on growing a new set of characters in the same world. Like, I think that's kind of what a campaign in my kind of ideal mind would become, you know? So like a campaign is something that is your world, right? That goes on forever uh, to a certain extent, right? And the individual adventures of an individual party are just one chunk of that. I think if you have the wherewithal to stick with it, that can be a great way to play. I probably get bored too quickly, so I don't know I'll be able to do that, but we'll see. Thank you for the calls, Daniel. I, I I played both your calls back to back because I think a part of your second call kind of relates back to what you're talking about on the first call and what the what I perceive the author is saying about progressing beyond the basic level of play. 
So I'm going to go back to the book to make sure I, I get this right, make sure I didn't, in case I said it wrong in my last podcast, where he says, in my experience, it takes about 50 sessions of skilled play, maybe 250 hours total for a campaign to mature to the point of leaving the low levels decisively behind. Now, first of all, that implies five-hour sessions. So that's that's a fairly lengthy session. And that's about a year's worth if you're doing it weekly because 250 divided by 50. But I think what I don't think he's talking about necessarily the characters not being able to progress beyond the basic level. I think he's talking about the players, if they're new players, being able to progress beyond the basic level, that they are they are not as prepared. And that's why I played your two calls back to back, because in your second call, you talked about how when you've started at that fourth level, it doesn't quite feel right. And you're talking about it more from a world building perspective, more from a character and party history perspective than the perspective of the players being capable of dealing with the maybe more different types or maybe higher level threats that they would face in that fourth fourth level and above category. But I think it's a similar idea that the just as the you know the world may not feel right, the the play style, the the playing of the game may not feel right. And I think some of that goes back to what he talks about earlier in the book where he talks about having uh, basic procedures, scouting doctrine, light discipline, uh, room entry doctrine. And he talks about organizing the, the players, having a caller, having a mapper, having a logistic, a logist, a, someone who handles logistics. <laughs> So I think, and I think all those things take time to develop. So I believe, and this is my, this is my opinion, that he's talking about the, the players and the play group maturing and progressing in their play and their play style from essentially starting from scratch, from never having played or maybe having played, you know, board games, war games, things like that, and progressing to what is required to play D and D, a wargaming way. I think that's what he's talking about when he t- says it takes 250 hours of play, and some of that may be because you haven't learned the lessons. Your characters are dying, and you're starting over again. And some of that may be you haven't got the basic procedures down, so you're in danger of when you face higher levels of threat of just being overwhelmed because your play group is not organized enough, and you don't have your party organized enough. And especially again when he in the the wargaming style where you're probably going to have more of those, you've got hirelings and you've got henchmen. So you're going to have this big party of persons in the dungeon party, in the adventuring party, where it's just not okay, we have four people at the table, we have four characters. You may have four people at the at the table and fifteen persons in the party. So I think that's what he's talking about is it's more about, you know, that we talk about system mastery in RPGs. I think he's talking about system mastery of this style of play. It takes about 250 hours for a play group to get up to that standard to where they can handle something different than just basic dungeoneering. I think that's what he means. And, but, you know, the when you pointed it out, I was like, 
I don't think I commented on that. Did I miss that completely? <laughs> because that that is a long period of time to say be still third level. And that's interesting that you talked about your experience of taking a year because the gold was so skimpy of being able to advance to beyond third level. And he's talking about uh, 250 hours and 50 sessions of play, which would be a year. So that's just, that's just wild. And the fact that both you and your players found that unsatisfactory. And I think with probably to an, maybe to an extent with even very with, you know, players with no experience with RPGs might experience that unless just, within the context of the game and the things going on in the game, you're so involved that the experience points and the advancement are kind of second, second notion to you. But yeah, it's, yeah, that is a big number. <laughs> that's a, that's a big number requiring essentially a year of five hours a week of weekly play in order to, to move up to beyond just playing in the dungeon, which is, you know, uh, oversimplification of the basic level of play, but that's that's how he puts it himself. But yeah, I think he's talking about the play group and not necessarily not gaining enough experience until you have 250 hours in. Thank you for the call, and uh, anybody out there, Bandits Keep YouTube channel, podcast, blog, he's got it all. Uh, check him out if you're not already. And I wrapped up that last commentary and realized. I didn't address the last part of your second call, which I also found interesting. Interesting uh, topic: uh, What is a campaign? What is a campaign? What, what is a campaign you're supposed to do? And I agree. You see in OSR and old school play a lot of a lot these campaigns that have gone on forever because not because not because one group of characters has continued forever, although they may have on on some areas, but just because the world has persisted. And the older characters, as they've leveled up, have gone on to become NPCs and probably persons of note in the world, and new adventuring groups have risen. And of course, in the open table concept, where everyone's adventuring in the same world, and you have a large number of people dropping in and out, and large different different groups of characters, and people have multiple characters, maybe in different regions in the same in the same world. So there's a lot of adventuring going on, and the world is is a is a living, breathing being. That type of campaign, I know that's exactly what you're talking about. I think from reading this book, the author's concept of campaign is exploring a thought space, exploring a genre, exploring an experience, exploring a a specific world, a specific way, and with the idea that you play in that world. And you experience that world and you grow in that world. And then after a time, you're you're kind of done. You've explored that world as much as your group can. And from that point on, it's going to be kind of more rote type of thing. And you start over because it goes into in different sections of the book. And I, I can't put my finger on an individual part. Otherwise, I'd point to a page or something. I think he may cover it later in some of the campaign section that I haven't covered on the podcast yet. Just about how it's about, you know, figuring out, when he talks about starting campaign, talking about what kind of campaign you want to have and where he goes into detail about how he views the campaign as the the basic foundation of 
playing D&D in the wargaming way and not a specific rule set, not a specific, uh, you know, old school, new school style of play, but the, the campaign itself and what you're trying to experience and what you're trying to, to reproduce, maybe, maybe a particular movie setting, maybe a particular book setting, maybe a particular television setting, maybe a, just a particular type of world where there's high magic, there's low magic, there's no magic. But whatever it is, you're you're interested in it beyond just hey, let's sit down and play a game. I think there's a there's a he, he, there's an intellectual line that he lays in here, things about learning and growing and things like that. So so I paused my response because I was struggling a little bit there. So I'm going back to page sixty specifically. Anybody that's following along, the dual merits of the practice. The wargaming activity has the merits of sport. We practice the entirety of sportsmanship, from social relationships of teams and rivalries to the character building of victories and defeats. It also has the merits of scholastics. Whatever the subject matter of the game, the wargamer learns it inside and out, puts it through its paces in the simulation tools of the craft, and has the potential to derive insight into how things work. So I think that part about the the scholastics is what he focuses campaign. On in terms of campaigns, the scholastics of exploring a particular a particular space, a particular time, a particular uh, way of seeing the world, or a particular world to experience, and so that once you have thoroughly explored that to the extent that the group gains value from that, and at, at that point you would stop that campaign, and not necessarily a more forever style of campaign that I know. I hear a lot about in old school styles of play where people say we've been playing in the same world for 30 years or 40 years. And the, the idea that the open table and the sandbox style can go on forever, which I believe is what you're referring to. So that's, that's why I think there's that juxtaposition between what you hear a lot about in RPGs versus what he's talking about here in, in this book. So thank you again for the call. Uh, this time I really, really am wrapping it up, everybody. <laughs> and now more from my solo AD&D RPG campaign, Tales of the Dragon Slayers. This is going to be something of a campaign summary for my Tales of the Dragon Slayers solo AD&D campaign. It started as a one-off, an intellectual exercise in using the systems of AD&D could you build a first-level party that could challenge and maybe even kill a huge ancient red dragon? And it turns out, spoiler alert, I did. Now there were. Now I have another episode. That's a different episode. That was episode thirty-nine, where I actually did that. And in episode forty, I broke down a little bit about how I generated the characters and how I generated these the scenario that led to them confronting this huge ancient red dragon. And I may go back and try to summarize that as part of this as well, or maybe later on. But the point is I found it so interesting and I had an idea a long time ago of what would happen if a group of first level characters were able to slay or come just come across the lair of a dead powerful creature like this that had a lot of magical and, and, 
monetary treasure because that would in turn create a lot of wealth for them, but they're still first level characters. They still have limited character abilities. They still have low, no, fairly low number of hit points. And everyone would want a piece of that because any part of the world where that kind of creature exists, there would be factions and races and creatures that want that wealth and want that power that is in that horde. So those two ideas combined in my mind, I decided to continue turn this into an ongoing campaign. And in the process, based on the decisions I made in creating the party and creating the scenario, I had to kind of backfill what had happened leading up to that point and where they were going to go from there and then let the dice do some of the talking, let the dice do some of the deciding, rolling on tables throughout the AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide or using the Monster Manual, using the Player's Handbook, or where necessary, creating my own little custom charts to sort of fill in the decision-making and the back-and-forth that would normally exist in a campaign between a Game Master and players playing the party. So to give sort of a world summary, I went back and decided to, just in terms of tracking the days, start with when did the dragon come into existence? When did the dragon start its rampage, essentially? Because the basis of the story was the dragon, this giant red dragon, had moved in sort of a frontier area near an area where humans had a fort at the end of a large mountain pass and began just kind of clearing out the area, asserting its dominance, and a lot of creatures and animals fled. And, of course, there were those who tried to challenge the dragon to stop it before the party was able, able to do that. So as a general scenario, part of what attracted the dragon here was there was another dragon, a gold dragon, that had taken up root in the area that was kind of exploring and learning about the world around it. And so on what I can call day zero, that was when the red dragon came in, caught that gold dragon as it was about to go on a, on a journey, on an adventure, had not really prepared heavily in terms of combat spells or anything. So it was a sort of a disadvantage. It was a lesser dragon than the huge ancient red dragon and was driven off. So the next day, day one, was the day the dragon's rampage started. Within about a week, after its presence become known and people realized that it was here to stay, the troops from the local fort attempted to drive off the dragon. And that was a process that started on day six and continued through about day 20. A few days later, day nine, what I called specialty units, essentially the equivalent in this fantasy world of special forces, as well as adventurers, had also organized themselves and we're beginning to go out and to try to both drive off the dragon and again try to locate its horde and take possession of that. That was on day nine, and it was going to go out to day 35. And what what's happening is the dragon is just getting the better of people. Troops are being killed, resources are being sapped off, adventurers are dying, or being scattered or never heard from again. Maybe perhaps they were stopped for other reasons, maybe not specifically the dragon. And so at that point, people were kind of hunkering down and there was discussion within the kingdom that controlled that fort at the sort of at the edge of its realm, whether or not they would continue to do that or maybe retreat back into the past of distance 
and just let the dragon have its way. Now, our party is organized under the auspices of a paladin. Uh, Sir Gus is his name. And he became interested in that. He, he lived, lived in sort of the capital city some distance away, about four days' journey by light horse. More than that, if you're marching or if you have a heavy, heavier coterie moving about. And so he began organizing his own party, someone he knew from his training. He was a cleric paladin because part of the build was, as I was building these characters, was trying to give them enough diverse abilities and cross abilities that maybe they would have a chance to, to survive. So he was a, a first level, first level dual class cleric paladin. And so in his cleric days, he had met a half-elf, Katya, and she in turn knew or was related, or was related to an elf, Bernie Keebler, and they set off along with two hirelings, two bowmen, Harl and Quinn, to confront the dragon. As they, that was on day 36 that they left and began their journey. As they, as they proceeded to the, to the frontier, they came across three others who joined them on their quest. Kudzel the Mighty, who was a human fighter, magic user. Uh, I don't think I mentioned Katya is a half-elf fighter, magic user, cleric. Bernie Keebler is a fighter, is an elven fighter, magic user thief they also came across a halfling fighter Sven Svenling from Svenland and a human ranger druid Edgar Greystoke so they arrived at the fort on the frontier on day 50 and the next day began their adventuring they came across Along the road between the fort and a city down in the valley below, there is a uh, there are several what I call keeps, five keeps, a day's march apart, and the sort of second from the fortress end keep, they found I ruled that they found some scorch marks, evidence that the dragon had been there, had attacked someone, and so they delved within to see if they could find someone who knew more about the dragon, perhaps had taken cover. And that's why there were was were those signs of the dragon attacking there. In the process, they had, had some adventuring. They acquired some magic items. That was part of the build to get them where they wouldn't have enough experience to to be become second level. So they're still first level party, but a little adventuring and see what kind of random magic items they could have that could help them with the dragon. That was on day fifty three that they began that delve. On day fifty four, the dragon was spotted flying around. And they began trying to track where the dragon was. That took several days. They finally located the dragon lair on day 59. On day 60, they executed their plan to attack the dragon and succeeded. In the process, two of the members, Bernie and Sven, died. And Katya and Kajal were dropped below zero hit points, although they were eventually stabilized. The next day, day 61, as they sort of recovered from their wounds, they decided that the dragon's cave was too exposed. They wanted to find a place to move the treasure to. They looked for a more suitable cave in the hills around them. But, uh, but by the end of the day, 62, they realized 
there was anything close by where they would be able to maneuver their their wagon that they had brought with them and move the treasure to. So they made the decision that in that keep they had, they had encountered a room with a secret door and on the back side a one-way door into another secret corridor. And they thought that would be a good place to hide the treasure because they could go into that room, deposit the treasure, rig the door a little bit to where beyond it being a secret door, it would be tied off in some way and only they would know exactly how to get through it. And then they could go out the one-way door to get outside and then they were the only ones able to access the treasure. So on day 63, they began... Part, some of the party members began the first process of moving a batch of the treasure. Typically, this was one of either Sven, it was usually Sir Gus, one of the men-at-arms, and then they also had taken some valets with them to help with the camp and everything to keep, keep the adventurers kind of on task. And so one of those would go with them as well to help move the treasure at the other end. During this time, the two magic users, Cudgel and Katya, were identifying magic items as they went along. During this first journey, they, things went fairly well. I had ruled that a lot of the creature and animals had been forced out of the area and would not begin migrating back in for a couple of weeks to a month, depending on whether it was intelligent or not intelligent creatures. Uh, but on the way back, they did encounter from their from that first trip. They did encounter a band of dwarves that was also out looking for the dragon to kill them, to kill it. And when they discovered that the party had killed it, they were very excited and declared them friends and allies and invited them to visit them and bring dragon scales if they wanted the dwarves to make some some armor for them. Then they had the second treasure run during this time, Katya discovered a ring of wishes, and Cudgel discovered a ring of delusion, which took effect on him, and he began treating it as a very valuable magic item and acting more or less a little squirrely whenever people asked him about it or tried to question him about it. When the traveling party returned, the party had a discussion and decided to use the wishes from the ring of wishes to bring Bernie and Sven back from the dead, which brought their party back up to full strength. Although with some side effects, Sven now serves as kind of an attractant for particularly intelligent creatures that are around them, so it would be harder for him to hide with him in the party. And Bernie came back with kind of a propensity for fear, to be fearful, because he had been affected by the dragon's fear aura when he died. During the third treasure run, that was when they began to encounter creatures more often. By this time, each of the treasure runs takes roughly five days, three days fully laden to get to the keep, and then a couple of days to get back to the cave. So on this, on this circumstance, they encountered a band of orcs and a band of ogres. But due to some of the good roles that I had during character creation, Katya had some psionics, and that helped them overcome these creatures. The ogres were fairly heavily tre treasure laden themselves, which sort of added to the treasure that they were transporting or were going to have to transport. They also, when they got to their keep, 
they found a force of brigands camped out at the at the keep, but fortunately they spotted them in time to not have to deal with them in force. And the next day the brigands left because they were moving on. That that was that encompassed. I guess I should say the first treasure run encompassed essentially days sixty three through sixty eight. The first that was the first treasure run. The second treasure run encompassed roughly days sixty nine through seventy three, and this third treasure run was seventy five through seventy nine. During this third treasure run, once they got the treasure unloaded the party actually split again because they were running low on supplies and Gus Katya and one of the hirelings went and ballets went back to town to reload on supplies and to begin and to alert Gus's family. Gus is a, he's a cavalier class paladin using the unearthed arcana rules and to let his family know his family is a noble family that they had successfully overcome the dragon and that Gus needed, because of they had encountered these large groups of brigands and orcs and ogres, that they needed to send troops that Gus would be able to provide for the troops monetarily to keep them supplied, and that would help protect the treasure. Uh, on their way to town, they encountered a group of nomads just camped off to the side. There wasn't any confrontation or anything. Although later on, the nomads and the brigands did have a confrontation themselves, with the brigand group being almost completely destroyed. So the so the party split up, had split up into three teams. The team returning from the treasure, from the keep, recovered some of the treasure from the orcs and ogres and took it to the keep and then returned to the cave. And just a little while later, Gus return Gus and the valet and the hireling that went with them returned to the cave. Katya remained behind to take get training from a magic user in, in a town near the fort. The party minus Katya was finally reunited at the Dragon Cave on day 87. By then, it had been raining for several days, and the storm swept in the next day. They spotted a group of orcs coming toward the Dragon Cave at the same time a tornado came through. The tornado wiped out the orcs and hit the cave, but fortunately did not do any severe damage to the cave or the party. The rain continued for the next few days. On day 90 at the fort, the fort commander made the announcement that the dragon was dead. This began the organizing of caravans and various adventuring groups to begin setting out once again. The day after, a group of thieves and assassins and their cohort set out to begin looking for the dragon cave themselves. The day after, on day 92, a caravan guarded by fort guards began moving back down the road to try to reestablish trade with the town down in the valley. The party had left the cave on another treasure run to the keep on day 91. On the night of day 94, the traveling party was attacked by wolves. During that same day, ransoms had arrived for hostages being held by the brigands who had earlier been all but wiped out in a combat in combat with the nomads, and the nomad women and children were allowed to return south to their ancestral homelands on the condition that most of the nomad warriors remain 
to help guard caravans until such time as the fort guards could be replenished due to losses from the dragon. On day 95, the lone remaining brigand combatant, the cleric, returned the hostages to collect the ransom. And the day after, on day 96, the cleric returned to the battle site, attempting to recover intelligent swords from a lake where the nomads had cast them because due to alignment differences, simply by picking them up, their lieutenant and one of their warriors had been killed. The cleric was unsuccessful, and the next day returned to the first keep, the nearest keep to the fort, which was serving as an unofficial headquarters. Having been told a few days prior by the guards of the caravan moving, moving north that they would be reoccupying that keep upon their return, the cleric and the, his remaining followers cleared out. That same day, a group of hill giants came to the dragon cave that night looking for sustenance and having smelled that the party was around and demanded that the party provide them with food, preferably some of their horses, or suffer the consequences. The party sent Sven and Gus, Sven and Ernie out to hunt, and they were able to recover sufficient game to satisfy the hill giants' appetites, and they moved on their way. That was day 97. On day 98, the caravan arrived at the town in the, in the valley, and the party made the decision to move all the treasure they could and themselves move to the keep with the idea that the little remaining treasure, some silver but mostly copper, they would try to return to later. On day 99, the party while traveling had to skirt around caves that had been occupied by a hobgoblin tribe. And on day 100, they arrived at the keep and found that the light cavalry group that had been part of the troops sent by Sir Gus's family to help them was already there. When they entered, they when they entered the keep, they discovered that several orcs had been killed, finding evidence of that and they tracked the blood trail of survivors to the secret corridor behind the secret room where they had been hiding their treasure and discovered another secret door leading upstairs. They defeated more orcs there and then withdrew to tend to their injuries with the intent to go up the stairs the next day to clear out whatever was upstairs. The next day, day 101, the party went upstairs to clear the third floor. There they encountered the remainder of the orcs, but were able to overcome them, killing most and taking some captive. They discovered that these were the survivors of the orcs that they had initially encountered on one of their previous treasure runs. These They were from a tribe called the Raging Snouts. The party continued to clear out this upper level essentially two flights of stairs above the main level that they had entered on, and they encountered a shambling mound, several giant beetles, and some giant centipedes. But with that, they had secured that upper level. So the next day, they began the process of moving the treasure up to that floor 
and to establish it as kind of part of a base from which they could have some refuge and rest in between delves into the dungeon. The next day, day 103, the party and the cavalry that they had with them chopped down trees to help block off one of the hallways so that they would only have one direction they would need to explore for the time being. Also on day 103, the remainder of the troops that Gus had summoned arrived at the fort and made contact with Katya, who was a few days left from completing some of her training. And at the Dragon Cave, the Hill Giants showed up again looking for more food, but finding no one there, they moved on. The next day, day 104, the party began clearing out the process of clearing out the keep in earnest, the first real dungeon delve of the keep. While at the Dragon Cave, the remainder of the Raging Snouts tribe that had come looking for what had ever happened to their expeditionary force discovered the Dragon Cave and decided to make their home there, moving into the cave and beginning to construct some above-ground defenses and huts to live in. On day 105, the party continued to their to clear out their dungeon out the dungeon and this continued into the next day as well day 106 but their dungeon delving was interrupted at midday with the arrival of a creo sphinx in front of the dungeon demanding treasure but the party was able to convince the sphinx to leave though it did much on a horse while it was waiting for the party to be recovered from the dungeon itself and that brings us up to essentially where we are in the chronicle of the party's adventures and what's going on in most of the world. The only thing really to add is that as the fort troops were returning from the town in the valley, in the keep nearest the town to the valley, they discovered that some knolls had moved in. And as they continued to move up the road and occupy the other keeps, when they got to the party's keep, they let them know that there were knolls down there, and they were they were expecting the party to help to provide support to clear those knolls out, as that had been part of the agreement for the party to be given essentially possession of the keep that they are in and clearing out to turn into their headquarters. So that puts us up to date to where we are with the adventure right now. As far as what's ahead of the party next, uh, they have already encountered within their keep that they're trying to clear out some dwarves and gnomes who had taken cover there during the dragon's attacks and they're seeking to find all of their kin and get them rounded up so they can help them get back to their homes Uh, they have a map to a dwarven settlement in the mountains to the south the dwarves that they had encountered that had been out looking to destroy the dragon who had offered them the opportunity to use the dragon scales to turn into some sort of armor or something as well as just simply a potential for allies if they should need them elsewhere in the world a uh, another merchant caravan heavily armed has departed the fort heading down the road not being dissuaded by the presence of the knolls the fort guard is organizing with the nomads and some of the remaining guards and some of the new guards that have come in to try to put together a force to link up with the party also to deal with the gnolls 
there is the orcs have taken possession of the dragon cave, but the hill giants who have seen this as a potential source of food will be returning to that location within the next few days. So there could potentially be a confrontation there. Uh, Cudgel is in possession and wearing a cursed ring, and the party has seen that this has had an adverse effect on him to an extent, and they have had discussions about how to deal with that, and they've asked Katya why she was doing her training to see if she could find some sort of remedy within the town or some sort of help with that, either through research of how to deal with it or perhaps contacting some clerics of sufficient high level to deal with a curse. The party has acquired several maps as part of the treasure they've acquired from the orcs, the ogres, and the shambling mound. They have also, with and within the keep itself, they have run across kobolds and berserkers and giant ants in limited numbers, but there are more of those within the dungeon itself, whether on the current level or on deeper levels. In the course of their exploration, they have found stairwells or chimneys or trapdoors leading to the second level, to the third level, to the fourth level, and to one level above and to three levels above. So there's plenty of exploration to be done there. Within the dragon cave, they had come into possession of two dragon eggs, one from the red dragon and one from the gold dragon. Uh, the gold dragon is still out in the world. It is. It was not killed by the red dragon, but it was driven off and is somewhere out in the world even as we speak. At the location where the party was attacked by wolves, they realized that there was a wolf lair just nearby with wolf pups in it, and they have taken to trying to train those wolf pups to help serve them. The thief expedition that set out from the fort looking for the dragon tre- treasure ran into the hobgoblins and were rebuffed and had to return to the port to regroup, but undoubtedly they will probably be setting out again, and there are probably other adventuring parties and groups out there looking for the treasure as well, knowing that the dragon is dead. The gnolls in the keep nearest to the town have acquired a large group of allies that they have run across, including hobgoblins, orcs, ogres, and bugbears. The party in their explorations of the keep have run across a pool that will grant a wish one time to lawful good characters. They have also acquired two new allies that they ran across within the dungeon, uh, a fighter and a paladin, as well as the men-at-arms that were with them. So there's a lot going on in this world. There's going to be a lot more going on in this world. There are some sort of distant ideas or possibly threats, possibly adventures that could be had. Uh, There's a hidden artifact that has been used throughout the decades or centuries by orcs and goblins to summon hordes to attempt to move into the areas south of the mountains where the human kingdom is and to into the mountains where the dwarves live. Uh, There is a self-appointed baron down in the valley near the town near the trading town who has doesn't have any official standing or recognition but has established a castle on the location there in sort of a stronghold kind of, sort of carving out his own way so that could affect the party at some point 
So a lot of moving parts, a lot going on. This was supposed to be a short summary, but it's going on 30 minutes now. So this will, so hopefully for anyone that hasn't been listening to the entire thing, this will help bring you a little up to date. I'm going to try to use my days since the Dragon's Attack system to try to keep things in line. So currently as of this time, time frame, we're on day 106, which is about which is 46 days after the party killed the dragon. And, uh, yep, that's where we'll pick up next time. Thank you for listening. The opening music of this podcast is Strength of the Titans, and the closing music is Late Night Radio, both by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0 License. Thank you for listening to Phantom Thoughts. I would love to hear your feedback. You don't have to be part of the show. If you want to contact me and let me know, hey, these are for your eyes only. I just wanted to give you thoughts, ideas, response, and it's really for your eyes or ears only. That's absolutely fine. I'd love to hear from you either way. So just let me know when you contact me. Just I don't want to be part of the show. There are lots of different ways you can contact me. You can send me an email at phantomthoughts podcast at gmail.com and that can be a regular email or you can attach an audio file to it you can use the message button on my podcast site on podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash phantom thoughts you can contact me via my google voice number 864-209-1441 You can contact me via SpeakPipe at www.speakpipe.com slash phantomthoughts. You can contact me on Discord, The Pink Phantom. All this contact information is listed in the show notes of every episode. And thank you for those who call in. Thank you for those who don't call in. I appreciate you listening and hope you'll listen again next time. Until then, I hope you have a great day.